Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I think I was always quite an intense, shy, pretty troubled kid, and like mental illness was in my family as well. Like my my grandpa and my dad's side um, had bipolar. My mum had periods of depression as well that we've talked about. So I think I was genetically susceptible. And then of course, the combination of having a really perfectionist personality and, and then being put into an environment like elite athletics at such a really young age and not, I don't think I really had the right support at the time or, you know, coaches or even my parents, I don't think really understood the pressures that were on young women's bodies at that age. When I was 18, I had an incident where I um, made preparations to take my own life. That's Australia's fastest ever female 800 metre runner, Katrina Bissett. And this is episode 85 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey friends, hope you're well. Hope you have had a positive day full of good vibes. I'm definitely hoping to send you more of those good vibes in this episode today. Today's episode is with Katrina Bissett. Katrina recently grabbed hold of the Australian record for the 800-metre running event. This is a record that had been held for almost 50 years with a, a blistering pace, one minute, 58 seconds, the fastest Australian, female Australian ever to run 800 metres. She did this as a long-term vegan. Katrina has been vegan for around five years and is currently preparing for the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, which she's pretty much already guaranteed a spot in. What I love most about Katrina is her humility and her openness to share not only about her ups, but also her struggles with anxiety, depression, and disordered eating. Despite what she has achieved this year, she seems unfazed and so grounded in a position where it would be easy to get carried away and and focus on the fancy things. She keeps things simple and doesn't lose focus on what's truly important to her. She also has an unbelievably powerful purpose behind her running, a positive voice for education and change that I am sure you are going to fall in love with. All right, that's enough from me. Let's bring her in. Time to hear from Katrina Bissett. See you on the other side. Katrina Bissett, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank you for having me. We've uh, we've got some church vibes going on in here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully I'll be saying some, I don't know, not too controversial things so it won't be um, too sacrilegious. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll paint the picture. So I'm, I'm down in Melbourne and I've sort of just rented out this Airbnb, which looked really interesting online, but it's a sort of... I guess converted 
church. Well, yeah, is. renovated um, church. Yeah. yeah, and you're studying architecture. Yeah, so this is so when I walked in, it was um, I was <laughs> much more excited about the house <laughs> than anything else. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful and like just the timber paneling on all the walls and on the ceiling and having those like. Yeah, the beautiful stained glass windows and the colours coming through. Yeah, it's amazing. It's creative. You wouldn't think of it when you walked past on the street that this was someone's house. No, like when I got out, I got I got an Uber here. When I got out yeah. and I was looking at the number and I was looking at this church, <laughs> like th- because this apartment is like there's a, there's a few apartments in this church complex, but this one is like literally in the front door of the church. Yeah. So actually, I thought I was at the wrong place, but yeah, I mean, I walked around the whole place <laughs> trying to find your, your door. Yeah, so I mean, when I, when I booked it, it was I saw the photos online, and it looked like a creative space. And you know, I'm doing doing some writing at the moment, and and obviously for this podcast, mm. it like a, a nice space. But also, the other reason I like staying around here is it's in walking distance to Veggie Bar and oh yeah, Transformer. I was thinking that when I was writing in, yeah, like having like the vegan eats. What's that one called? Like the deli? The deli, um, yeah, Smith and Deli. Smith and Deli, yeah, Smith yeah. and Deli, and then Smith and Daughters. So yeah, this would be the perfect place. Both of them are great. Yeah. So I bumped into to Morgan Mitchell, mm-hmm. um, my good mate Morgs. Yeah, a couple a couple of days ago, <laughs> we were both flying back from Sydney. We we're on different flights, but we we were sitting in a similar part of the the airport, mm-hmm. and I I asked her how to pronounce your name. Yeah. And she she told me it was Katrina. I think I stuffed it up the first time. But Don't worry, everyone do you get does. That? You it's get that especially it's, it's a pretty it's pretty funny having um like the commentators and and that sort of thing calling out my name like Katarina, Catriona <laughs> when I'm racing. But I think now that I've gotten a little bit more um, publicity, people are, have gotten on that it's Katrina. <laughs> but but in terms of nicknames. I prefer Trina to Cat. Okay. I think that's still something okay, I'm gonna Trina. gonna <laughs> gotta get people on board it's with. It's good to know. <laughs> so what, what's it? Morgan? Do you live with Morgan or no, no, no? Well, we we went on two trips together this year for two for the World Championships and for the World University Yard, so the um, University Games, and so we were um, roommates for both those trips. Okay. So I'd never met her before this year. But I had followed her on Instagram for, I think, since 2016 when she became really big from the Rio Olympics. And, like, at that time, I I wasn't running. Like, I was just, you know, doing athletics for fitness. I was working full-time in architecture and... Yeah, she was like a pretty big inspiration to um for me being an athlete and being vegan to know that you could do it. Like she was she was one of those people that I would just show all my friends like, when I was would meet them about like this amazing like yeah, role model for um being a strong vegan athlete. I think it's it's and it's fascinating and this is something I want to get into today that that's only 2 3 years ago. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And and now here you are you you hold now we're competitors. You're competitors. Yeah. So she's we're moved from 400 now. to 800. Yeah. yeah. And and recently you've set the record for the, yeah. the fastest ever time. Yeah. For, for an Australian. Australian. Yeah. yeah. So I got the it was actually the oldest women's record for Australian athletics. So it was 43 years, 43 years old when I broke it. Yeah. Charlene Randina was the previous record holder. It's also Victorian. Yeah. She was great. 
She's so real fiery. Where, where was that race held at when you did that? That was in the London Diamond League. Okay. Yeah, so in London in July. And going into that race, mm. you know, I guess we we see the athletes at the events at these times, but going in, had you run times like that during training and knew, knew what you were capable of? I think it's a hard one because this year has been a really big change for me. Like I never expected to run so fast. So in such a short period of time, like you were saying, only two or three years ago, I was, you know, sitting at home looking at Morgan (laughs) and thinking that was a completely different universe to the universe I was living in. So I was running and race, like racing really well. I'd had a really good domestic season in, in April. Yeah. March, April. And so I knew that I was you know, running well. And and in those races domestically, I was winning them comfortably. So it was this kind of, a lot of people around me were saying, if you got into a really fast race, maybe something special would happen. But still, I think at the time I was very much just, you know, the new kid, <laughs> just happy to be there, happy to, like, that was my third international race. So that block that I went to Europe, I went there for the university games and that was my first international competition. And then I had one race in Sweden and then we went to London for the third race. And so I was pretty tired. <laughs> like I had done about two and a bit weeks of racing and then that was my final race before I had a bit of a holiday and then went back home. So, yeah, I think I kind of knew like in the warm-up that I was feeling really good and I, I tend to run my style is like I get momentum going. So I have a few really good races and then it builds up and I get faster and faster each race. And so I knew that if things went to plan and nothing went went wrong, it would have been, yeah, I, I'd be able to do something a lot faster than I had before. Gosh. And, and that race, correct me if I'm wrong, but that has given you an automatic place at the 20... 20- 20 Tokyo Olympics? It's the, I've got the auto qualifying time. It's a little bit more complicated. So for me to get automatic selection, I still have to win our selection trials in April, in late, late March. But the, so the, the international governing body for athletics, they set the qualifying times and they've set them quite hard. Like they are, like, they're much harder than they were in say for the Rio qualifications. I think ours is like two seconds faster, which is huge in the 800 meters, which is like basically a sprint anyway. So it's going to be quite challenging for a lot. So I'd say probably less than 30 people in the world will run the qualifying time. So in saying that, I guess I'm alluding that it I probably will get selected (laughs) as long as I'm healthy and fit, which is a lot easier said than done in a lot of ways because I, I did pick up an injury before going to the world championships. So it's okay. It's pretty it's a pretty tough sport, athletics. Mm. At that level, it's like very, very hard on your body. Yeah. Most people are nursing some kind of niggle or injury at any point in time. That's something I actually want to dive into towards the second half of this conversation when we talk about yeah, okay. training and recovery and, and leading up to the Olympics. But back to this race, you you took sort of Australia by surprise and, and I guess the athletic community. Yeah. Um, from from everything they read and hear, people really didn't expect you to to run at that pace. But going back to you as a kid, you were you were a very talented runner in your early days, right? Yeah. So I did the whole little athletics thing from 
I think I think I maybe was six years old when I started with little A's on like Saturday mornings. And my dad did a lot of distance running as a mature age athlete or like a master's athlete. So yeah, I did that for pretty much all primary school. I was, yeah, doing little athletics and doing quite well. And um, yeah, and so when I was about 12, I ran quite well for my first national championship, so the domestic championships. And yeah, pretty much from there, I kind of got swept up in being a kid, being a high school adolescence. Like I had a few bit of a rocky road with mental health issues and um, including an eating disorder, which I think was definitely related to running at such a high level at such a young age and the pressures that come with that. So yeah, I ended up taking probably about a decade off high level training and competition. But yeah, when I yeah, I I was definitely I guess a pretty talented little kid, <laughs> but definitely a kid. I wouldn't a lot of um the media have sort of said that I was a talented junior, but that kind of makes it think that you're kind of 17, 18. Yeah, so but no, I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. what, you know, what was your sort of underlying motivation for athletics then? Was it was it fun for you or were you watching the Olympics and could you see yourself there one day or you know, what, what was inspiring you to sort of show up and and be committed to athletics at age 12? I can't really remember. I think a lot of it was I just really enjoyed the social side. Like, I mean, it is really fun, little athletics and all the competitions and like the multi-event carnivals and all that sort of thing. And I think I've just always been very ambitious and very competitive, (laughs) even when I was a little kid. And so I guess there was that kind of feeling that like I had to do it. And um, It was a bit of a challenge. It was a challenge. It was really satisfying. And yeah, I just had a really high standard for myself, I think. And so, you know, family life at, at this this part of your life, what was life like growing up? Do you have any siblings and, and what were sort of the things that you would do as a family outside of athletics? Yeah, um, well, I kind of, yeah, just a ordinary suburban Canberra <laughs> upbringing. My mum's Chinese, so that was um like a, managing those like the different cultures was really interesting and challenging yeah. as well. Where's she from in China? Um, from Nanjing. Okay. Yeah. I, I've been joking around a lot about trying to cultivate my Chinese fan base. <laughs> I haven't managed to <laughs> tap That's into. no joke. You should do that. I really want to, <laughs> but I don't know how. I've been telling everyone. I well, think that's the first thing. Just <laughs> you, do you, are you speaking Mandarin or? Yeah, Mandarin. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not fluent. I'm okay. studying Chinese at uh, Uni Mal, University of Melbourne, alongside my masters, and that's been really good. But I'm far from. You might far. get a bit of a cult following if you get onto. I really want to, to WeChat and. Yeah, I need to get onto WeChat. <laughs> I need to get onto those platforms. There's like damn those firewalls. <laughs> Can't build the Instagram or yeah, Facebook. Yeah. But so um, brothers and sisters or? Yeah, I've got an older sister who was a, she's a really good soccer player. So she played for the W League. She's just playing for fitness and fun now. But, um, and she had a ankle reconstruction a few years ago. And yeah, and my dad, yeah, he was a long distance runner. My mom was always fit. And, okay, so you had a bit, of, yeah. a bit of running in the family. Yeah. I mean, definitely nothing I don't, I don't think my grandparents or anything like that had much background in running, but yeah, my dad was very much, I think I've, I've had got some really fond memories of going for long runs with my dad. It's one of them, like our 
bonding moments. Yeah. yeah. And I'm assuming a, a fair bit of the sort of Chinese culture in terms of the cooking came through at yeah. family dinner time and stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I learned how to cook from my mum and I really want to be cooking more Chinese food now. It has been interesting becoming vegan and like my mum's really good with cooking vegan food when I'm at home. And it's the great thing about Asian food is that you can swap out proteins and it's it's pretty easy to accommodate. But yeah, that's I think that's my next few years. I really want to get into, you know, adapting my mum's recipes for for vegan vegan meals. Yeah. So she's been quite receptive to to you sort of changing the way that you eat. Yeah. Um, when did you decide that you would change you know, how you were fueling yourself? I decided about, it's probably over five years ago now. So I was vegetarian. So I met my boyfriend a bit over five years ago and I was vegetarian at the time. And so I was pretty on the road. I was transitioning at that point and he was vegetarian too. So we just decided to do it together. And there wasn't really any one day that we decided it was just this sort of transition and I don't even remember when it became vegan, but yeah, that's what happened. And was that something that you guys were doing for, you know, for health reasons or animal welfare or what was sort of, you know, inspiring you to, I guess, you know, go against the norm and, and do something mm, different? Definitely for me at the start, it was the environmental reasons. Like my parents are both, they both met doing like mechanical engineering PhDs. So they're pretty nerdy. And so I grew up in that very sort of scientific, nerdy kind of environment. And yeah, and my dad's a big, big on solar energy and um, and all those sort of environmental activism. So I, I sort of grew up in that environment. And so that was a really huge motivator for me. But then, yeah, as the years go on and the more research that I do, and now I've got a dog as well, like, um, and empathizing with animals, it's become definitely a lot about animal welfare yeah, as well, I'd I say think, probably more so than the environmental in terms of my emotional connection at least, yeah. The dog piece is interesting because when you when you have a dog and you have that connection with an animal, you start to think about speciesism and how yeah. you know, we treat different animals completely different just based on, on what they are. Mm, yeah, I mean, learning about like the, like the ideology of like Carnism and veganism, like yeah. I found that super, super interesting. You heard that speech by uh, Melanie Joy? I, I don't think so. I learned about carnism from yeah. one of the Ezra Klein podcasts. Okay. Yeah, but I thought that was really, really fascinating, just kind of making people reflect on their own ideologies when they don't think they're actually subscribing to any ideologies. It's mm. like just going with the flow is still subscribing to an ideology. Like you're not... <laughs> like, well, that's that's it. I yeah. mean, it's, it's kind of instilled in you from society, mm. right? I might get you to share me that link, and I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, okay. If we can, sure. if we can dig it up. Okay, so we'll, we'll come back to to your diet and 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 also what you noticed from a performance point of view, and if you had any sort of fears of removing these animal products, which you know society very much states are, are what we need to perform and stuff. Mm. Well, let's come back to that. But you you mentioned that as you were growing up, you you suffered some periods of anxiety and, and sort of disordered eating. Do you look back now and, and sort of appreciate or understand what triggered that for you? Yeah, I think it's pretty complicated. Like I've been thinking about this question a lot because over the I've been pretty vocal about my experiences 
And now that I've had a bit more media attention with the athletics, I've been asked this question a lot, like having to reflect. And it's really, I think, quite interesting because it's it's always a whole bunch of different things. Like it's not, yeah, I, I'm not sure if the word trigger might be the right one. Um, I think that in, yeah, I think I was always quite an intense, shy, pretty troubled kid. And like mental illness was in my family as well. Like my my grandpa and my dad's side um, had bipolar. My mom had periods of depression as well that we've talked about. So I think I was, yeah, genetically susceptible. And then, of course, the combination of having a really perfectionist personality and, and then being put into an environment like elite athletics at such a really young age and not, I don't think I really had the right support at the time or, you know, coaches or even my parents, I don't think really understood the pressures that were on young women's bodies at that age. So yeah, I think it was that sort of combination of all those different factors. And was this something that you were sort of openly able to speak about with friends and your family and and, and were they sort of was it quite visible or were you do, was a lot of this silent and you were trying to sort of you know, hide it from people? Oh, it was all silent. I was very good at hiding. <laughs> it was, it's really only been when I was 18, I had an incident where it just all like I, I don't know if I <laughs> maybe should have a, a warning before uh, <laughs> the start of this podcast. Um, yeah, I um, made preparations to take my own life when I was 18. Um, so it became pretty obvious at that point that I needed to start talking to people. But pretty much up until then, I was very private about it all. And yeah, so I didn't talk to friends or family really at all through that period of high school. And it was only when I went to Sydney to study yeah, did I, did I get some help? And then it's been a process since then. So maybe eight, nine years. No. So I was 18. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. About eight years now. So, so when you look back, you know, in that period when you, when you're 18 or even a bit before mm. and you sort of reflect on it now, like in hindsight, is there anything that you think would have helped you work through that period of your life better? I think having some more support people who maybe some like a female coach, like there's been like a uh, opinion piece that came out recently. I don't know if you've seen it from Mary Kane, who was an American distance runner. She just came out and talked about her experiences running with the Nike Oregon Project. So which is a, a really, really successful American running group, which is led by Alberto Salazar. So they've had people like Mo Farah and like Safan Hassan who've come out of that group. And so she was with them for a few years straight out of high school. And so she did this video piece with New York Times and talked about how, yeah, she was body shamed and um, really pressured to lose weight when she was before like the age of 20 kind of thing, when she's still pretty much a growing girl. Developing, yeah. Yeah. She talks about having those sort of female role models. But I think the more that I reflect on that, that sort of thing, I don't think there was sort of like, I wish someone had said something like that. I don't think it's more like that. I think it was just, I think we need to recognize these really toxic cultures. <laughs> like, I think it's not really any one thing that would have made it better. It would yeah. just be, let's not 
sort of talk about girls' bodies anymore. So like, you, so that the disordered eating side of things it was was pressure to change your body weight to in a certain way in order to run better times. I don't think it was so explicit in that way, but I definitely think there was an atmosphere of that. So I I don't have any recollection of coaches sort of telling me I had to lose weight or that sort of thing. But I do even remember sort of like my dad and my coach at the time sort of, you know, encouraging you in that way and being like being thin or being lean is like will give you better performance, will make you run faster, which is just so damaging and pretty much just really incorrect in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I guess, and and I'm sort of reading between the lines here, but I guess what you're saying is, the intent may not have necessarily been bad. The oh, intents yeah. were good, probably. Yeah. yeah. But you know, you, from an environment for a girl, it can or a guy or yeah. a boy could be uh, perceived, you know, in another manner. Yeah. Particularly someone who's young and impressionable. Yeah, exactly. It's like all those little things, all the smaller behaviors. It's that culture. It's the training environment, the racing environment. It's all those things that sort of layer on top of each other to create this feeling of pressure yeah like there was definitely no one around me at that time who hadn't had any intentions to you know make my life harder or make me have an eating disorder or anything like that absolutely not it was just yeah it was just that environment Mm. so you said it wasn't until you were 19 that you sort of started to speak to someone was that like a pivotal stage where you were able to start working through some of this yeah absolutely so yeah, I've been seeing a psychologist pretty much, yeah, since the age of 18, quite regularly. And so that's been been amazing, sort of thinking back over the last few years of how much I've improved. Yeah, so that I think that was a really big turning point. I think in a, for a whole lot of different things. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And I've heard that you've described these mental health issues and, and the suffering with, with disordered eating as a blessing in disguise almost. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about that, elaborate on that and sort of how you, you know, look back on it and, and use it as a positive now. Hmm. Well, I think like as we, like I mentioned with Mary Kane, like when she was that age of 17, 18, that's usually a period where young female athletes might have issues with like their like amenorrhea, having their period stopping and having bone density problems and because I wasn't running at an elite level at that age, I kind of, you know, leapfrogged um, that period, which I think was really, really positive, but still retaining that sort of, I guess, physical intelligence that you learn as a kid doing sports. And I think, yeah, I avoided a pretty tough period that a lot of young women in sport like go through. And I think it's been extremely good for me Um, learning how to ask for help. I think that's been something I've been talking a lot about around this is that I'm really good at getting a good team around me. Like I think that's been a big difference between me and a lot of other athletes at at the moment. Like I, if I'm having any issues, like I know who to talk to. I've got a really strong team and I'm pretty self-aware. Like I can, I can um, understand when things are going going downhill or, I mean, it's not perfect. <laughs> it's always going to be a challenge. I'm sure, it's an ongoing process. It's definitely an ongoing process. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, in general, it's been really good in terms of my own self-awareness, yeah. How much do you attribute your this sort of 
you know, very recent success and this blistering pace to to what we're talking about, to the to the mindset side of things rather than the actual physical side of things? It's always really hard to say. I'd say definitely, yeah, I'd say definitely a huge part of it would be related to mental strength and resilience that I've learned. But yeah, it's it's you, you, I can't really say um, one's more than the other. Yeah, I don't know. When you sort of re- reflecting like we are now, mm. if if someone's someone's listening and perhaps they're currently in a in a similar sort of mind space to where you were, and, and maybe they do athletics as well, and they're, mm. they're around similar pressures, and and they're you know losing their passion for it and having negative thoughts and, and things like that. What would your advice be to them or what would you have liked to have heard from someone else back then? It's hard to say because a lot of the time for myself personally, I'm not sure if anything would have helped me at the time. Like I think I was dealing with a lot of issues that just the passing of time, me sort of getting older and, and understanding myself better was the only way I would get through it. That said, like I think just being vulnerable, I, I like encouraging people to be vulnerable has been like, because that's been such a great thing for me, sort of having those pivotal moments in my life have been when I have been vulnerable and, and have asked for help and let other people in. And I think a lot of the time, because it's an individual sport, athletics, it's always like me, 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 like it's, I can do this by myself, but it's, it's no, like you need a team to produce top athletes and you have to be vulnerable to be able to collect a good team and to get them all on the same page and for for them to give you the care that that you need they need to know what your your situation is and I think the other thing is just sort of learning to forgive myself and be a bit more easy on myself yeah I think at the time like I thought I could do everything by myself and I'd be really hard on myself because I couldn't yeah, letting myself be kind of shit <laughs> and, and, and that being okay and taking a break and not running for a while or not playing sport for a long period of time, like just giving people permission to to have a break, yeah. It's easy to get caught up in that cycle of just constantly needing to be perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the other side of, of this is that sort of, you know, speaking to the individual but I guess if you're if you're a coach or a parent, it's it's important to be conscious of these sorts of issues and creating that mm. environment. Oh yeah, you know that will support these yeah. girls or, or, or boys. I think our sort of sporting governing bodies need to take more responsibility around educating the parents and the support people around these topics. And it's and it's like you were saying before about intention. It's like these people have the best intentions. It's just they're not really equipped with the self-awareness or the skills to understand, like to to deliver that care. It's interesting sort of reflecting on my own experiences, having people in my life, like when they're confronted with this idea that they might have been contributing to a negative culture, a lot of the time, yeah, that they're not very good at um, at changing that behavior because it's like my my intentions were good and mm. and that sort of thing. 
I wasn't quite sure where I was going with that line of thinking, but anyway. No, but I, I mean, we're talking about changing their culture and, yeah. and getting and educating from from parents to coaches to mm. ultimately to create that environment and shift some responsibility, not just on on the the kid yeah. who, who's running, but to the people around them. Yeah, I think there's so much of it's just listening to the athlete and accepting that perhaps the way that you're doing things isn't the best way for the kid and being really open-minded, being like radically open-minded about doing things differently, even though it might challenge your own personal beliefs of, of how you want to do it. Now, before you, you mentioned that you, you transitioned your diet five years ago Mm -hmm. from vegetarian to, to vegan. And that was, you know, initially from a sort of planetary health environment, environmental angle before that sort of growing up as a as a kid what was the typical meals that were served up at your house they were all amazing home cooked chinese meals <laughs> so that's what i grew up with um lots of flavor lots of flavor like i never understood why other kids hated vegetables and i didn't understand why that was like a a funny thing trope on TV shows and that sort of stuff. It's like the vegetables were my favorite part of like Chinese meals because they were so flavorsome. Mm. So one of my favorite meals was just like white rice and eggs and tomato. Like that's like a classic (laughs) Chinese meal. And then just like stir fried bok choy that my mom would grow in her garden yeah, my mum had a bit of a farm going on in our backyard. Farm yeah. to table. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I go to China quite a bit and you're right, there is, you know, there's a lot of vegetables in the dishes. Yeah. And you know, lots of bok choy and, and broccoli and mushrooms. There's some great mushrooms. Mm. Oh, man. So you, you started to transition and you were remo- removing animal products. And at this time, did you think about how that may or may not affect your performance and was that important to you? At the time, I wasn't running that competitively. Like I, it wasn't, I didn't think about it at all. It was all about those other things of um, like what I could do for the environment and what I could do for animals. It wasn't, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't really think about that at all. So you were running more sort of recreationally. Exactly. Yeah. So I was just running for fitness and for social, social reasons. But when I started, when I moved to Melbourne, and I started training with my current coach in a squad that was much higher level than my previous squad. Yeah, there was a, when I first moved here, I, I started running quite well. And then for a little while, I had a really bad patch of iron deficiency. And I didn't really know at the time what was wrong with me. <laughs> I was like, why am I so tired? I thought maybe. And were you, were you just sort of intuitively eating? Like you weren't tracking your food? Yeah, I wasn't tracking. I wasn't taking any supplements. Yeah. I was just, a lot of my information was coming from like Instagram. Like it was pretty bad. Like, and that's sort of where I got to this point where, yeah, I had a really, really bad iron deficiency. And then I just hit my, like, just hit it with everything. I went to see a dietitian. I went to get a blood test. I started seeing a psychologist. How many years yeah. ago is this? Like That was two years ago. Okay. About two, two and a half years ago. Yeah. And so that's when I saw a dietitian for the first time who was like a specific vegan dietitian had experience with sports. So that was Lucy Taylor. I, don't know. I know Lucy, yeah, from uh, Bloom. Yeah, she's incredible. She's so good. Mm. And and I think that's who Morgan mm. I refer a lot of people to Lucy. Yeah. I'm not sure whether she's still seeing people. She might No, be. I don't think she is anymore. Yeah, unfortunately. But, um, but, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, my, um, you know, my brother – 
my sister-in-law, my mother, they've all seen her. She's, yeah, she's, she's so on the board. Yeah. So you went and saw Lucy mm-hmm. and so she, she helped you work through the iron deficiency? Yeah. Well, I ended up getting an iron infusion yep. because my iron was so, so low. Yeah. She just reviewed my diet and I was just not fueling myself properly. I was not eating nearly enough carbs. That was the biggest change. And was that because you were worried about carbs or had, you know, sort of a preconceived idea about what carbs were or? I think it was a few things. I think I just, I I was still having those sort of lingering like thoughts about my body and, and about athletics because I was sort of getting more into it. And I think I just had a lot of just like bad information. Mm-hmm. Like I was just getting, like I started eating this bread that was like mostly seeds and nuts. And, and Lucy was like, this is not bread. <laughs> like This is just pure fat pretty much that you're consuming, which is fine in moderation, obviously, yeah. but that's not where a distance runner gets but you were really just trying to like carb cut by the sound of it yeah without really realizing it i think and so it was really awesome having her review my diet and just injecting a whole heap of carbs and and i started taking regular iron supplements and a few and like b12 and 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 vitamin d and that sort of stuff and yeah it's pretty much I just went all up from there in my athletic ability. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine you would have gone from feeling pretty lethargic to yeah, quite energized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. So talk me through now. So you were intuitively eating, then you went and saw Lucy. She's giving you some advice. You've changed things up. You're eating more carbohydrates. And I'm assuming they're, you know, they're from sort of unrefined. It's not from Yeah, so food. she's a whole grain. Yeah. Oh, sorry, not whole grain. I'm whole foods yeah. dietitian, yeah. So now what does what does food look like for you now? Like you as a as an elite runner, is it something that you have to track super closely or have now you got it to a stage where you're quite intuitive and, and understand mm. what the foods are that you need to fuel yourself for performance? It's definitely intuitive now. It's intuitive. I guess it's sort of like educated intuitive. Mm. So I, for a while I was tracking really heavily around the time where I started seeing Lucy. And I think that was really important for me to just become really aware of what I was eating. But then over the last, yeah, few months, like, yeah, last year or two, like I've gotten pretty good at it. So I don't, I don't really track Mm. anymore unless I'm really conscious of um so I started I got my diet reviewed again about six months ago from um Alan McCubbin who's a sports dietitian so Lucy referred me on to him for much more specific sports related diet and so I started tracking again a bit then but yeah now I'm just sort of I think it's yeah it's amazing like a little bit of tracking right for a lot of people is it's an incredible exercise because Mm. It just gives you that ability to look at your food, yeah, and and understand what it is, yeah. Particularly if you're an elite athlete, yeah. So when you saw the the sports dietitian, 
was there any like particular goals or targets and uh, things that he was trying to get you to achieve, like, you know, protein or carbohydrates? What was it specifically that he sort of um, designed for you? The only thing that we really changed was more strategic snacking. So he said my diet in general was very good from what Lucy had set up for me. And it was more so fueling sort of carbs post, um, like, so yeah, fueling carbs at the right time. So sort of carb timing and, and protein, like, like much more higher protein snacks. Sure. So having like two high protein snacks a day to supplement three. What do they look meals. like? So I've started supplementing with a protein powder yeah. and I won't have that every day. It might just be maybe two or three times a week after a really, really hard training session and I can't get a meal in straight away afterwards. Yeah. So that might be gym at like, if I have gym at nine in the morning or something, then I'll have just protein powder after that. Yeah. And the protein powder is actually really, really good for racing overseas. <laughs> like it's a very specific one, but it's because a lot of track races they're in the evening so it's mostly the program is an evening program and you're just wired you can't eat like you're so there's so much adrenaline um so when, you, when you've finished or like when yeah or, after, no after a race yeah, yeah so I'll have like a for example I might have a race at like 8 p.m so I wouldn't have eaten dinner so I would have had just like a snack a couple hours before and then like I just could not stomach a meal after that. And it's maybe 9 or 10 p.m. and you're in a foreign country and you you don't want to eat the hotel food or they don't have any vegan protein yeah. options in the hotel. So it's just it's a little bit of nutrition to help you with your recovery. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's just to help you bounce back the next day because, like, for running you have several rounds of competition day after day. So, yeah, it's pretty important getting that dose of protein before you go to bed. Yeah. So in in terms of your meals and your, I guess across your overall day, because I think the listeners will find this really interesting, mm. was there like a, a certain amount of protein that you were trying to get for your body weight or was it more just focused on eating enough to be full of the right foods and not worrying too much about the grams? I think initially I had sort of gram targets when I was tracking, but now I'm just sort of doing it all by eye kind of thing. It's like I'll try and have at least 150 grams of, say, tofu or maybe like one can of of bean, of chickpeas or something per meal. So it'll be pretty loose. Yeah, I and, and with the carb intake, I think it was like maybe 300 grams a day or something like that, and then for body for body weight per gram of protein, I think it was like one and a half yeah. maybe. Yeah. Which I, is pretty achievable. Yeah. It's, it's very easy to be honest. Like you just got to make sure to get that dose of protein yeah. for each meal and then having maybe 15 grams of protein per snack kind of thing. Yeah. But I don't really pay attention that much anymore. It's It's a lot easier now. And what about, I guess, pre-race or the night before? Is there any particular types of foods or carbohydrates that you're trying to eat for the before the race yeah i try to stick to the low fodmap foods just because yeah running can be pretty hard on your gut and when i have all the anxiety and butterflies mm. pumping amazing. through my body it's amazing when you have that little bit of anxiety yeah how quickly you just feel your digestion shut off yeah exactly so i try and have just rice, like plain white rice um, with just maybe like a stir fry, like a, a tofu vegetable stir fry, just something really familiar and really 
you know, easy to digest, nothing, nothing crazy, no heavy or foreign foods. I mean, that's a challenge when you're overseas. You kind of have to make do of what you've got. But yeah, that's sort of what I stick so to. So how do you navigate around that while you're traveling? Like, do you, do you take, you said you take a protein powder, but do you take anything else or? Not really. It's still a work in progress. <laughs> it's um, when I'm on the teams with the Australian team, they usually have a dietitian, like a team dietitian. Okay, so that so, helps. Yeah. So for example, in Doha for the world champs, um, we had Jess Rothwell from the VIS. She's amazing. And she sort of just went out to the supermarket and collected a whole bunch of things. So I had all of those basic ingredients like, you know, packet rice and and tofu and all that sort of stuff. So I could quite easily stick to that diet. But yeah, often when you're on the European circuit, you get put up in a meat hotel and you just get given the food that the hotel provides. Yeah, and then you kind of have to figure it out. <laughs> like It's um, just being vigilant, going out, finding a sushi place, you know, it's, it's not too bad in Europe. Yeah. And you mentioned that you take, you're still taking iron supplements as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So yeah. you're taking that just to manage your iron levels ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned before B12, any other supplements that you take? I started taking like an omega-3, like a vegan omega-3. Mm-hmm. Like an algae oil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the algae ones. Yeah, and I take a, a daily multivitamin. So those are my main ones, just the iron and the multivitamin, really. Those are the two ones I always take. And I have also take um, beta alanine during yep. competition season. Yeah, and so, yeah, and I was doing creatine for a while as well. Yeah. yeah, there's some good signs on both of those. Yeah. Um, particularly for people that are not eating animal products. Yeah. Because there's creatine and beta alanine are mm. you know, typically found in animal products yeah. and stuff. Back to creatine, do you feel improvements in your performance with creatine supplementation? It's really hard to say <laughs> because, like, it's always hard asking these questions, answering these questions because my athletic career has been so short and so sudden. Mm. It's very hard to say what whether one thing or the other has made much of a difference. I definitely know that seeing a dietitian and getting all the iron stuff sorted out was a huge difference. But other than that, I think, I guess I I can't really pinpoint it. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. And what about recovery in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, just being able to keep up with the training volume that you do? Are there any specific foods or, or things that you do to to help you back, back up your training? I just really have to make sure I eat really regularly throughout the day. So for like a like a day in my life will be pretty all over the place. I might have class in the morning and then I'll have gym and then I'll um, go to have a physio massage and then I'll come home and and I commute on my bike for all of those things. So it's just making sure I have like snacks and muesli bars and that sort of stuff in my bag and making sure I do find time to actually eat in between all these things has been a big thing. Like often I'll be cycling in between my first and second training session and just start feeling, oh no, like I'm starting to get a bit depleted. So it's just really trying to manage those points where I've just pushed it a little bit too far. Is, is that how you generally sort of get a feel for your recovery? Is it subjectively how you're feeling? Like how, how do you and your coach work out whether you have fully recovered and, and what your sort of volume should be you know, for the, for the mm. upcoming week and things like that? 
I mean, that's a huge challenge. And I think if we had some really, um, I think my coach and I, so yeah, as I said before, I picked up an injury between my first European trip and then the world championships. So that was about two or three months time period. And yeah, so I had a stress reaction, like bordering on fracture in my fibula. And so based on what I've talked to about the doctors and physios, that was really related to my training load more than anything else. Like a lot of the time, female athletes in particular, like bone density problems are pretty related to just energy deficiency and um, amenorrhea, but Mm. like I don't have any issues with either of those. So it was just a matter of, yeah, training, (laughs) training at such a high intensity without having those periods of rest. So it's definitely a work in progress, figuring out what those warning signs Mm. are. And I think a lot of it is taking it out of my hands. I think, like, I think athletes really struggle to figure out when they're, (laughs) when they need a break. I think I'm getting better at it, but a lot of the time, I think for me personally, I just need a handball to my coach and him to program in compulsory recovery. I think that's going to be the next thing for him and I going into the Olympics, making sure I can take those two or three days off. Managing that volume is very important. Exactly. Yeah. You, you mentioned then the importance of consuming enough calories and and that's something that i actually see all the time as well particularly in women Mm. that are that are uh, very active Mm. in that that they're not just not consuming enough calories absolutely for for what they're doing how do you do that you know on a plant-based diet a lot of foods are less calorie dense than animal Mm. foods which means you know high volume of food to, mm. to eat. What Do you have any sort of tips or tricks around that? What are your sort of high calorie meals and or foods that you like to go to? I think a lot of it is like I do eat, I guess, like sweets and, like, and that sort of thing. Like I'll eat a lot of chocolate and peanut butter. And I mean, I'll change that around those months of like competition where I really do want to care about the um, my body fat percentage. But yeah, I just try and eat as normal as I can. And yeah, that intuitive, intuitive eating. Like what would a breakfast look like for you? So I always have the same breakfast. I have um, overnight oats. Yeah. So I just soak three quarters of a cup of oats and then a cup and a half of soy milk. And then that ends up being like, I think I tracked it once. It was like 3,000 kilojoules maybe. And because I'll put like maple syrup and berries and everything and and it'll be like 25, 30 grams of protein. So, yeah, I, I have yeah, that So that's day. quite filling. Yeah. Yeah. But then I'll, I'll have like raisin toast or something in the mid-morning with coffee. And mm. I just like try and eat just throughout the day. And, yeah, just not, try not think about it too much. I think I guess that's the, the thing about intuitive eating. Like you're mm. just trying to get. That's what I like about you that you're an elite athlete. But what we're talking about Anyone can do this. It's not yeah. like you're you're doing some sort of elite, unattainable no. nutrition program. Absolutely. Um, you know, I you, think it's a total myth. Yeah. yeah. Which is really refreshing to hear that. I mean, I think it's really represents a strong mindset. I think it's a lot of athletes fall into the traps of trying too hard to regulate their food and their training. It's like you're already thinking about so many things. And like if you can have that relaxed mindset of I'm going to be pretty easy on what I'm eating, 
because a lot of the time athletes, like, as you say, it's just getting enough calories. It's just getting enough kilojoules in your body. Mm. That's the main thing. It doesn't, all the time, it doesn't really matter. Like that's the ultimate goal. Like where you get those kilojoules, like sometimes it doesn't matter as much as actually just getting them in your body. Mm. Particularly once you've, like you have, you've seen a dietitian, you've got the the bases covered. Yeah, exactly. You know? So then you have the confidence to go away and yeah. eat intuitively. Yeah. I think that was a, that's obviously helped you a lot. Yeah. And I think also like the, like, sorry, I keep cutting you off. It's just like the, like the periodization, like I'm in off season now, I should be heavier. I should be consuming more kilojoules. And that means I'm like insulating myself from injury. I think a lot of athletes struggle with that idea that you have to fluctuate in weight and body fat across the year because you, you really put yourself in the danger zone of, of injuries if you're trying to maintain a low body fat percentage mm, for the entire important. year. Yeah. Yeah. And, under, and being comfortable with that, that that's okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me what, obviously, you know, Morgan, she, she's vegan, so mm. she gets it. She gets what you're doing. Mm. Right. But most athletes are not. So other athletes, uh, with, you know, whether Australian or international athletes that perhaps, you know, hear about how you eat, do you get curiosity? Are they asking you questions about about the way that you're fueling yourself and how you're feeling? Mm. Yeah, I, I, definitely th- I, I definitely have been. And it's been interesting with the Game Changers movie coming out. I, I haven't seen it, so I can't really talk about it. But a lot of athletes have started talking to me about going vegan in a way that's like awesome, but also really worrying <laughs> because um, I'm just don't know how sustainable it is if they're doing it purely for the idea that it will improve performance and without any other ideological basis. But I think it's still really great yeah, to and have out there. You know, I, I think it's, it, it is great that the, the conversation has been yeah. sparked. You're right that sometimes it's, it's stronger if people have, you know, connected to another pillar. But mm. um, the important thing is having a degree of nutritional literacy. Mm. You sort of just yeah. jump into it yeah. and you're not, you, you're not covering your bases. Yeah. You know, you, like your story, you, you got to a position where you were, you know, iron deficient, and, mm. but then you went and saw someone. Mm. Um, you know, I always advise people, like, if you're going to change your diet, take the time to learn the information. Yeah, do it right. And see the totally. experts and, and do it right. A lot of these athletes could well see performance improvements mm. depending on what their current diets mm. are. Exactly. Yeah. So whenever I so I've had a lot of people talk to me about it. And so I the first thing I say is see a dietitian. Like there's only so much that I can tell you in an Instagram DM kind of thing. Mm. Um, you should like you should sit down with a professional and really analyze what you're doing right now and how to improve it. And yeah, and I think a lot of them will experience uh, an improvement in performance because potentially they haven't even ever spoken to a dietitian. Mm. Like they've never had like nutritional education. So I think that's a really positive thing about this movie as well and this and people getting more, yeah, that conversation happening because if you are going to make a big change and you see and you do it the right way, like you will get performance benefits. And with your sort of connection to the environmental aspect, how, how important is it for you as you get more publicity, you become more of a household name? Mm. How important is it for you to, to talk about the benefits of removing animal products from your diet from a, a planetary health point of view? Yeah, super important. I think that's been one of the most 
special and wonderful things that has come out of running fast is having this platform where people actually listen to what I have to say and I can really use that platform to do good things and spread positive messages like around mental health, like around environmental activism, animal rights. I think it's something that I'm still learning how to do, like learning how to educate people in those short sort of soundbite situations. So it's yeah, I'm learning a lot in a short amount of time. <laughs> yeah, I think you can, particularly if you can cut into that Chinese market. Yeah. You know, their, really their meat consumption mm. is growing faster yeah. than anywhere in the world. Yeah. So my dream is to write a vegan Chinese cookbook for athletes. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a, one of my various projects. Because I feel like my mum, like there's so many of my mum's recipes that I could adapt to to vegan absolutely um yeah to, to veganize and I think then, that's a great idea yeah and then apply my own experience as an elite athlete put my brand on it i look forward <laughs> to reading that <laughs> <laughs> thank you um so you know aside aside from nutrition and your performance what other things do you do you do to improve your running time and the amount of training volume you can you can do whether it's you know sleep routines or ice baths things like that yeah. Like I always like to think about the big stones, if that makes sense. Like the, like, I don't want to put any emphasis on those like one percenters. I think that's a huge misconception. And I think a lot of athletes get consumed with these sort of new gimmicks and gadgets and whatever. And it's like, yeah, so sleep, sleep, diet, training, those are the big ones. And then of course the mental side of stuff, like having family time, having time with my dog and my boyfriend and going out and, you know, eating pizza and being a normal person. Like, I think if you get all of those things in the right balance, you've ticked off all the big stuff and that's, what's going to improve your performance. Like, I think of course, when I'm getting down to the fine details, when I'm racing, of course, like ice baths. Yeah, I do. I get regular um, physio treatment. I see these great physios called Reload Physio in Brunswick and been seeing them for um, a couple of years. And so I see them and get a massage every week and just release my calves because calves are my problem area, <laughs> that lower leg area. But yeah, it's, it's also all the big stuff. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's getting that foundation right because yeah, exactly. our minds – our minds want us to wander to the the latest trend and the latest fad, yeah. right? Yeah. But there's not much point in doing that if you're not getting those those basics yeah, right. Exactly. And then there's so much just like pressure you put on yourself if you're adding these too many little things. It's like, oh, I didn't do my ice bath, so I'm not going to recover. And it's like, no, if you have a good night's sleep, it's better than any ice bath. Like, yeah, it's all those things. So the the road now to to the 2020 Olympics, mm-hmm. which by the sounds of it, you'll be there. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> How much has changed since you set that record and and you've had your eyes focused, you know, now on the Olympics? What's changed? What does the preparation look like now for you until until that time next year? Well, I think the thing is, is not to change anything, not to do anything differently. Like what I've been able to achieve has been from doing things the way that I have been doing them. And so, yeah, I think the biggest thing is just going to try and be as healthy and happy as I can leading into to Tokyo. 
Yeah. So just working closely with my coach and improving that sort of recovery side of things. And I think naturally it will be a lot easier and um, I will be able to increase my training um, intensity and my training quality just because I'm a stronger and more grown up athlete than I was six months ago. Getting a good race experience overseas as well, leading into the champs, I think it's going to be a huge deal for me because like I was saying before, I, I run a lot better if I've had a few good races in the bank and build that momentum. So it's sort of just applying all the things that I learned this year. But yeah, not not really going to try as little as I can, try as, try as much as I can to change as little as I can, yeah. And what about the sort of external noise? Like do you feel any an element of any extra pressure now that you have set this record as this, the fastest Australian ever to run the 800 meter um, women's race. Mm. Do you feel any element of of expectation? Oh yeah. Like, I mean, how can you not? (laughs) But I think I'm that kind of person anyway. Like I was putting pressure on myself two years ago when I was struggling. Like I only made a national domestic final this year and like last year I put so much pressure on myself to make that final and I didn't and like I think it's always going to be like that and I think I'm in some ways lucky that I've sort of come out of nowhere I'm a bit of a wild card like I don't have the same expectations as a lot of other athletes people are just kind of don't really know what I'm going to do there's a bit of a bit of a mystery <laughs> element to me which has been really nice like people just kind of leave me alone they just let me do my own thing because I'm 25. I'm not some prodigal 18 year old. Like I don't need to be looked after. They just sort of, yeah, it's been really nice. People have given me a lot of space. You come across as the person that probably likes to float under the radar. Oh yeah. And be the center of attention. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I'm very much someone who likes my work to speak for itself. I, I really don't want to, I really feel uncomfortable pushing, pushing things. I mean, it's something I'm going to have to learn to do, especially if I want to help people by being really vocal about environmental issues and especially the mental health side of things. It's like if I have more publicity in that way, I, I can do more good. So it's it's always a balancing thing. It's, it's nice to have that deeper layer of, I guess, purpose behind yeah. why you're running. Yeah, exactly. You know, why are you wanting to you set a new record mm. while you're wanting to to achieve success at the Olympics. Yeah, exactly. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. We, we spoke before a little bit, I think, around tactics or, or perhaps we were almost going there. But what I find really interesting is 800 meter race, right? You know, running is a, is a, it's an individual sport mm. in terms of your training and, and whatnot, but it's it's competitive. You're, you're, you're competing against other individuals. How important is understanding, studying your opponents? Is it something that you do at all to, 
to understand the style of their run. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I I think especially for the 800 meters, which is, yeah, the first lane, um, sorry, unlaned event. Yeah, for example, I'll, yeah, I'll watch every Diamond League race, so all the big international races, and try and see the different styles of, of different athletes. Like, for example, um, Aggie Wilson, who's the top-ranked 800-meter runner, she always likes to lead, like that's her style. And um, it would become really infuriating how people just let her do whatever she wanted kind of thing. Like she would dictate the race. And it's like I'm really, I find that really exciting. So, so like, by leading she could set set the pace. She sets the pace. Where she wants it and exactly. leave, some, leave some fuel in the tank. Yeah, and it also means you run 800 metres. You don't run 805 metres if you're out in lane two, you know, like trying to squeeze your way through. So there's a lot of, lot of benefits for leading. I think it's actually quite an underrated tactic. I think in Australia in particular, people thought that me leading was because I that's sort of the style that I picked up in the domestic season was trying to run from gun to tape kind of thing. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of benefits to it. But so yeah, so I will watch all of those races and sort of get a feel of the other athletes and feel, you know, how I can <laughs> be a bit chaotic and try and stir things and that sort of stuff. And, uh, and that's sort of the fun of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's really fun, like playing around with those things. And and would you take the same tactic, like you know, into into one sort of championship? Would you? There's multiple races as you're mm. progressing through. Would you take? Do you take the same general strategies into each? Well, the ideal would be that you had a you know a collection of different tactics that you could deploy, like depending on the situation. Like I think the most useful tactic is being able to react to the people around you in a meaningful way. So for example, for my, so for the university games, we had the heat semifinals in consecutive days, which is not very common and really, really difficult. But I led the heats and semis and just tried to win them comfortably, which is really the way that you should do it for like championships. You don't want to risk getting knocked out in the heats or semis. And then in the final, I tried to <laughs> just lead the whole way, but I just didn't quite have, I was just tired. Like I was really tired by then. And my Ugandan competitor, she took the lead and I just sort of slotted in just behind her. And yeah, and the German athlete sort of kicked around me um, from 200 to go and I kind of had to slow down a bit and go around. Like I made a lot of tactical errors and I got elbowed and it was it was really different. But um, Does it get pretty physical out there or it can? It can, yeah. You can sort of, you can get spiked and <laughs> walk off the track with bloody shins. For the 800, it's not too bad, but for events like the 15, I think it's probably the most... <laughs> you know, argy-bargy kind of kind of race. Is there an advantage starting on the inside versus the outside? Not really for the 800 because it's a land event. Mm. I think potentially being on the outside lanes is easier because you can kind of merge in. So you merge after 100 metres and you can kind of pick where you want to place yourself. Whereas if you're on lane one, you kind of have to, you're kind of pushed around by other people cutting in. So there's a, there's a little bit of an advantage to be on the outside lanes, but 800 meters, it's two laps. Like you've got plenty of time to 
to get get around those sorts of things. Yeah. It's nice to to hear a bit of the strategy. It'll, mm. it'll, you know, it makes for better watching as a spectator. Yeah. When you sort of understand that it's not just the gun goes and you run as fast as you can. No. There's some, you know, strategy and thinking yeah. happening whilst yeah. you're running at blistering pace. Oh, totally. And especially if you watch like the whole season and you've watched different athletes improve or get injured and then come back or you watch them play around different styles and then and having other other athletes mess with their other athletes styles and it's really really like you can form a really interesting narrative going into a championships like the worlds or tokyo if you followed the the competition up until that point yeah yeah it sounds sounds like a very fun component of it definitely. yeah <laughs> it is okay so while we're on this topic of race tactics did you or have you ever raced against Casta Semenya no, I haven't, unfortunately. I think that's one of the saddest things about breaking into the international scene just at the moment where she's been kicked out, yeah. Because she was, I mean, she won the 2012 and the 2016 Olympics. Exactly. Gold medals in the 800. And, and her times were around? Yeah, 154, 155, yeah. So just, you know, leagues above everybody else. Okay. And... I mean, she's been in headlines for eight, five, yeah. eight, eight years mm. um, all it's the time. It's been a roller coaster for her. It's been a big athletic story. Yeah. And and recently she's been banned from from running. I think she's a soccer player now actually. Yeah, so she's moved on to another mm. sport, which is great. What do you sort of make of, of her story and do you have an opinion on um, the banning, I guess the, the, the regulations that have been enforced? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I think she's the most interesting character in the history of of, um, women's athletics, just in the way that she's really challenged our ideas of gender and testosterone and the way that our sport is set up. And I think it's also exposed a lot of the sexism in, in athletics in the way that people have treated her and and really, you know, been very like verbally abusive. And like, if you look at her case, like she was um, subject to really rigorous sex testing, which I think, yeah, was a violation of her human rights. I think in terms of the system that we have now, that it's like, I, I yeah, I, I wouldn't want to make the decision of whether she's allowed to run or not, but like, I can see that there are a lot of benefits for me as an athlete to not race against her. I mean, that's an extra spot for the the final of the Olympics kind of thing. I think as a sport, we've been really terrible at um, like leaving her behind. And we've, I think having someone like myself, who's not a hundred percent sort of like expresses myself as feminine, like I have short hair and, and, and it's been a really interesting experience in the athletic world having short hair and that's like a very very innocent thing to (laughs) to have short hair and just the way that mostly men on you know and like trolls and that sort of stuff project these these expectations on female athletes to appear a certain way yeah and I think it's been really disgusting the way that we've treated her and I think it reflects that that our sport has a lot of things to think about in terms of how we set up our races and how we divide 
how we think about that gender divide. But yeah. <laughs> have you have you ever raced against her? No. Yeah. I really wish I had. I think it would have been an extremely interesting experience. But yeah, from what I've heard from other athletes who have raced her, yeah, it's really different. And and I don't know how much of that is is it actually being different or that sort of like mental side of things of like I'm racing Casas and many of the best in the world kind of thing. And and also that feeling of maybe I don't have a shot of winning. Maybe she like, I don't know, it's a different kind of environment. Mm, I guess it's hard to ignore when it's it's such a big story in mm. athletics and it's not even just in athletics. It's It's been, you know, covered by major media around the world. It would be impossible to ignore if you were a competitor coming up to a race against her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last two Olympics and and like whether she's going to be in the race or not in the race, like it's so interesting, the new era now, just like how people actually, it does feel like people are a bit confused of how to behave because pretty much for the last decade, there's been only one way to race and that is to sit behind Caster, you know? And like, I don't think she's been beaten in since they um so she for a period they enforced her to take hormone suppressing drugs and so pretty much since the point where they didn't when they stopped forcing her to do that she's been dominant unbeaten and yeah and now that she's gone it's really really interesting it's kind of cracked open the the scene for all different kinds of athletes and it's really exciting for someone like me who's um running fast enough times that I can sort of get in the mix. And if you can apply, you know, good race tactics and you're strong-willed and can react really well, everyone's got a chance. You've got a great chance. <laughs> like we saw that in the world championships this year when um, the Uga- uh, yeah, Ugandan um, Nakai, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, I probably pronounced it incorrectly, but yeah, she won in 158 flat pretty much. And that's not that far away from my personal best. And um, it's, and it was a quite a sort of messy, interesting race. And there's all these different tactics and different stories going on in that race. And like, it was a huge upset to the um, Aji Wilson, who was dominant all season without Caster there. So yeah, it's, it's really, really exciting for, for people mm. at that level. When you say without Caster there, is that because she was so dominant that she's you know, in some ways pulling the rest of the the pack up running at a, you know, a faster pace than perhaps if she's not there. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the fastest times this year and in previous years have been in races where she's won by a huge margin. Yeah. And, and a lot of people run their personal bests getting dragged through with, with Caster. Yeah. It's a it's an incredible mindset thing. Like, so is that something that you think about when you train? How can you how can you run a race, you know, with take Caster out? She's not there, but how can you run at that same pace as if you're chasing someone? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I don't know, like there's, you got to, in, in training, you're just trying to replicate a whole bunch of different situations and, and you can do that in, in different ways, like having just different pace reps. So having slower paces and then, doing a lot of speed work and that sort of stuff as well. So you can react to changes in, in pace, dramatic changes in pace during races. Yeah. You must, I mean, all of this must seem fairly surreal. Like do you do you wake up in the middle of the night or ever just, you know, sort of pinch yourself moment thinking, is this happening? Is this me? 
I definitely struggled a lot at the start. So in in the domestic season, I won nationals, which was, and I ran world champs qualifying time. I never thought I would even ever go to a major championships. And I sort of won nationals and qualified all in the same time. And I had this <laughs> reputation for a while, well, I still do, of just going into like zombie mode after I crossed the finish line because I'm just literally in shock. I like, saw you did a post about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like I, <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> that was kind of my, my thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and even after I, so the week after nationals, I ran 159. So sub two minutes for the first time. And that was, well, that was the fastest time a female athlete had run in Australia for a decade. So it was, pretty insane sort of ticking off all these milestones all at once. And I actually had a pretty intense moment after that race where I just kind of like broke down in tears for maybe 20 minutes. Like I was just inconsolable. Like I, I think, and I, and after that, having talked to my psychologist about it, I think a lot of it was this sudden feeling that my life was out of my hands now. Like it's like, I've run these incredible performances And now I don't have a choice. It's like now you're an elite athlete and you have to do it because there's that pressure. It's like other athletes have been like running for a decade to do what you did in a few months. And if you don't go to Tokyo, if you don't go to world championships, then you're an idiot. (laughs) Like I think that was really, really hard for me to come to terms with that feeling that now I don't have any, like now I'm a racehorse, you know. now That responsibility. Yeah. That responsibility, that sort of no longer being able to hide anymore, no longer being able to just go back to my normal life now that I'd done these things. Mm. Um, but everything happens for a purpose. Yeah. Um, and like you said, it's giving you that platform to 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 be a voice of positive change. Absolutely. I've, yeah. And, and I guess the other thing is it's like nothing really has changed all that much. Like I still go to training. I still go to uni. It's just... I have all these other opportunities to go overseas to talk to people like mm. you, talk to really interesting athletes. And yeah, I think it's going to be a big thing, just remaining grounded in that way as well. I think I've done a pretty good job. <laughs> your, uh, your family must be very proud. Yeah. And yeah. excited. Yeah. I mean, it's been interesting for them because they saw me as a little kid being really into athletics. I think when I was really young, I even said like, oh, I want to win a gold medal at the Olympics or something. And then for like a decade, I just, you know, no interest, mm. no self-belief at all. So it's been really, really interesting for them. And what about now? Is that something that you think about? Yeah, I like playing around with that thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, for me, it's just really trying to have fun with all of this. Because if I'm having fun and I'm training hard and racing and taking all those opportunities like, oh, I don't know, like, what I can do. Mm. Like, that's the unknown, which I find really terrifying and really exciting. It's like I never thought I would ever run the Australian record and then I did it. <laughs> and then it's been really, I think, really amazing for my self-belief and self-esteem because for such a long period of time I struggled so much with self-doubt and we yeah, have really negative thoughts about myself and about my body and then having all of this happen, it's kind of like it's so special proving yourself wrong. <laughs> like, like so many people can tell you that you're you're talented or that you know you're special or whatever. And but then when you do it yourself, 
you're just like, oh my God, like I am allowed to believe in myself now. I'm allowed to think that anything's possible, which I never had thought before. It's beautifully put. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for sharing, joining me on this episode and you know, sharing the ups and the downs. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's been said that you took Australia by surprise, but I think you're very much taking yourself oh, by surprise. Yeah. Um, and I don't think you know how talented you are. So, no. <laughs> um, you know, you're, you are so humble. You're Australia's fastest ever 800 meter runner. It's something to be very proud of, but I think there's so much more to come for you. So I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to, to watching your events from here now that I have a bit more in, insight into your story and, and, and the racing. So, if anyone that is listening would like to connect with you and, and follow your journey, where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, follow me on Instagram. That's um, a really good place. And also I've got an email address on my website that you can cool. you can send whatever through that. Yeah. Awesome. I'll put both of those into the show notes. Excellent. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. All right. There we go, friends. I, I told you she was humble. And I really meant it when when I said during our conversation, I, I don't think that Katrina understands how talented she is. It's it's going to be very exciting to to watch her in the coming years, not only as an athlete on the track, but also as an extremely gifted and, and educated public figure that can create and evoke positive change in the community. For, for anyone who is new to the plant-based lifestyle, as we, we stated in this episode, it's completely possible. This is something I want, want to reiterate. It's completely possible for you to sustain and even improve your performance on a diet without animal products. My own performance continues to get better over time as I continue fine-tuning my diet. But it really does all come down to, like anything, how much time you take to invest into this change, to to develop your nutritional literacy, and also getting the, the right support team around you, particularly if you are a professional athlete. If you're going to remove animal products, of course, you, you want to be in a position to know what to replace them with for, for best results, to ensure you're getting an optimal amount of calories and nutrients. If you jump over to plantproof.com, I have a ton of free information, blogs that can help with your base knowledge. And then I definitely recommend connecting with a local dietitian or nutritionist, someone who understands the benefits of plant-based nutrition, who can support you to create a specific plan for your circumstances and your performance goals. Finally, in this episode, we spoke about Katrina's low points and the importance of being vulnerable and talking things through with your support group. No matter how bad you think it is, there will always be people around you that care for you so much who will listen and, and help you work through these things. And if you would prefer to talk to a stranger, in Australia, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. And a trained volunteer will happily listen to you and provide support. If you're not from Australia, most countries do have a similar 
local non-for-profit suicide prevention phone number that you can call. The most important thing to remember is that you don't have to suffer in silence and it's certainly not weak to speak up. All right, let's wrap this one up. Be sure to connect with Katrina on social media at Katrina Bissett and and let her know and, and let myself know what you thought of today's episode. What did you get out of it? You can find me at plant underscore proof on Instagram. If we haven't already connected, I would love to. Finally, if you're enjoying the show and want to support, please leave a review on iTunes. It really does help the episodes become more discoverable. All right, friends, I'll see you in the next episode.